I did not want to interrupt this tune. Man, we live in crazy times right now. I hope you guys are all safe. I know there's a huge tension between wanting to not contribute to the spread of a deadly virus and needing to pay your bills. There's so much uncertainty in the world right now, and we can all see things that seem so incredibly unfair, but there's nothing we can really do about it. Kishibashi is an artist who's been immersed in the telling of stories about another time in our history when there was a lot of uncertainty and unfairness and powerlessness. His latest album, Omayari, was inspired by the mass internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. It's brilliant and inspiring and heartbreaking all at the same time. Right now, we're listening to his tune called Philosophize In It, Chemicalize With It from his Light album. I actually sat down with him backstage at his concert in Durham, North Carolina a few months ago, but he was losing his voice, so we had to cut our time short so he'd be able to perform that night. Then there was a European tour, and I had some trips to make. Anyway, we finally caught back up with a Skype conversation between his studio and mine just last month. So, please relax, stay home, self-quarantine for a bit, and enjoy my chat with Kishibashi, rock star violinist. All right, so uh, how was Europe? Um, it's nice. It's cold, rainy in England, but otherwise it's pretty good. Yeah, uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, that's pretty much how England is uh, always. All, yeah, pretty much always. It's like the Pacific Northwest with like bad teeth or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where was your where was your favorite place to play in Europe? Oh, favorite place. You know what? They had a lot of these cool like under the subway venues like many of them i guess it's like the wow. least desirable places but they're these cool like arches you know like they built like businesses and restaurants underneath the train tracks right and so a lot of the venue like set like half of the venues were like on these cool like tunnel archways venues like small That's venues awesome. it was really cool i mean they it would rumble sometimes but you know otherwise it was these like dark windowless um venues they're That's pretty super awesome. intimate, yeah. They're cool. Yeah, a little bit like the underground in Atlanta or something. Is the underground in Atlanta like is that under the railroad station? Uh, I don't know what it's under, but I know it's you know, it's it's yeah. this whole underground like city with streets and Oh, and I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's kinda of, it's basically like um they're above ground, but they're tunnel they're basically underneath the railroad stations. So they're like They've got these lat like arched roofs. They're all like arched. So a lot of my okay. if you look at my Instagram pictures, you can see they're all like they've they've tucked the stage in like these arched like areas. It was kind of it's it was interesting. I didn't I never Yeah, what's the that. sound like down there? Um, it's fine. It's just dead. You know, it depends on the venue really and the sound guy. <laughs> so most of the time it's fine. Actually, I would say quality wise, it's pretty good compared to yeah. a lot of small venues in America, I would think. That's cool. So your social media, I've been following you for a little while, man. Your social media is fantastic, especially like your Instagram stories. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Are, do you do all that yourself? Or do you have somebody? No, I do, I do that. I do all that stuff. Um, the stories, yeah, yeah. I, I just basically, when I tour, I have a lot of content because people just tag me in it and stuff. Oh, my, my right. buddies just tag me in it, so I can just recycle their content. Um, That's cool. I did realize that uh, my posts, the hashtags are kind of 
I don't really use hashtags, but maybe I should use more hashtags. And I'd be more famous. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's you got to use hashtags if you want to be famous. You want to be famous, you got to use hashtags. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think my favorite part of seeing your your like Instagram stories are the encore that you do every night on your show. Can you like explain that to people who maybe haven't seen it? Yeah, so um, I pretty much started that a few years ago, out of, out of necessity. I think I think they they told us we couldn't play anymore, so we had to shut the PA down. But then we told we asked if we could play acoustically, and they were like, "Yeah, that's fine." And so we you know we kind of set up in the middle of the audience, and then people loved it. You know, they went ape shit over it and so basically it was such a strong reaction that we had to basically do it i I pretty much do it every time you know i can because we can and people get a chance to like hear our instruments up close like especially like a violin or something you know they see us they see it plugged in on stage but they don't know what it really sounds like you know in the room so which is what it was made for so so i especially when we have string I, i do that with a string quartet ensemble too i'll like set up at the end in the middle of the room and the people crowd around and people love it, you know, that's awesome. Like everybody's using their cell phones to light it. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the, that's a trick <laughs> I use. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah. gotta be really surreal. Yeah. You have to ask them to, to do it. You have to shout basically the first 20 seconds is me shouting like everybody, you know, you got your, you know, phone lights and, uh, and then we just start playing and then it's just this nice evening, kind of like a closer to a big high energy show. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. So they can like you can you can get the crowd to be quiet enough to hear you acoustically while you're singing and playing. Yeah, pretty much. I like um I'm trying to think. Sometimes there's like one really drunk person in the front <laughs> who's singing along and that's kind of annoying. <laughs> but right. most of the, actually they all start to sing along sometimes. Basically the closer it gets to the weekend, they all start to sing along with the choruses if they know them. Um but no, I I pretty much like I get them all like super quiet. I think, um, I don't know. It's a, even in my shows, you know, unless it's a rare, unless the sound system is really bad and it doesn't translate to the back, I can usually get the entire room like listening, especially for the quiet stuff, quiet songs. That's awesome. There's a, there's a technique you can use if you want, um, that your listeners can use is you basically go up to the mic and go, and it gets the whole room to just start. And then it gets the the fuckers in the back just to, to shut up, and then uh, <laughs> and then you can only you can really only shush an audience once, you know. But if you right. if you have what, what that one song that you wish people would just shut up for it, you can do that, and it'll it'll work once, and then people, you know, it won't be that won't, you won't seem too condescending or right nanny nagging, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's part of the thing that they don't really teach in music school. Like, how do you manage? a room full of people, most of whom are drinking, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it's tough. It's, you know, when I was opening up and nobody, well, like I have the luxury of people obviously just wanting to come to see my music, you know, so they're going to sure. be quiet most of the time anyways. Um, one of the things you can do is you can raise the ticket price <laughs> so that it's not, so that they're only really your fans and kind of selectively play venues that, you know, that, that won't have a lot of stragglers, you know? Right. Um, because if they're paying fifteen dollars or more, that means they really want to hear the music, you know. I think. Sure. If it's ten ten dollars, you know, they could just be drunk and like just want to go in or whatever to see a band. Yeah. Um, I saw a bus. I thought I'd stumble in and see what was here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the kind of people who are going to talk and do shots in the back, you know. So, I think if you do, um, 
that's one way. And then uh, also just have a headspace of like, if I'm playing a Friday or Saturday night, it's going to be, it's going to be like that anyway. So I change my set so that it's not. Okay. So like, I don't do two quiet, two or three, three quiet songs in a row, you know, without a beat is pretty sure. tough on like a Saturday night, you know, unless yeah. I've got their attention, unless it's like a, a very nice venue, you know, where they're definitely coming to hear my music for sure. Um, yeah, I think it's different like when you're in a place where everybody's seated in like an auditorium yeah. versus a club where everybody's standing. Yeah, but if it's like if, if the ticket price is good and you know they're coming to see you, you, you can get them to be quiet for a lot of it, you know. Um, and I think, uh, what are the other techniques? Yeah, and I'll, I'll just change my set sometimes if it's too loud, you know. That I'm not feeling it and they're not, I can tell they're not listening, you know, too much. But the other thing is right. um, if you put in ear, if you do in-ear monitors or you put in earplugs, Basically, there's people talking in the back, but if you have the mindset that everybody in the front of you are pretty much like listening to you anyways, it's not, it's really in your own head, you know, that you need the complete, right. that you need the room silenced completely, you know, it's, uh, yeah, with in-ears, you can't hear anything anyway that's not being piped in. Yeah. So. If it's really bad, you don't have in-ears, you can just put earplugs in and just do your song. If it, bu- if it bugs you that people are talking, you know, because the, right. the, the, most of the people in the front are totally going to hear you and, and have a great time anyways. That's awesome. So you, um, speaking of your instrument, you saying that you play an acoustic violin. Um, what's the instrument that you're playing now? Well, good question. Uh, <laughs> it's the one that I bought from you. Um, it's the uh, David Gage uh, five string. Um, and I actually met David Gage. I went up to New York to pick it up. He's really cool. Right. Uh, I love it. It's a uh, it's a little heavy, <laughs> but it's a uh, it's got this great uh, it it's got this great like. Um, kind of electric sound that I like. I like, basically, when I play violin on stage, it's kind of a mixture of, I have the aesthetic, you know, I wear bow tie, and, you know, I have, like, this, I think I decided early on that I wanted this kind of orchestral aesthetic in a pop rock band setting, and so that's why sure. I, I, I tend to have, like, a, a not electric violin, but, like, some, I always had, like, an acoustic violin with a pickup, you know, and this one kind of fits that mold for me, just, the, just whatever I think I whatever I think my image is of myself, you know, on stage that I want to project. Right. So that's why, so that's why I like this instrument a lot. Five string. And the five string is awesome. Although my bow, I, I, I don't know that my bow can handle it. I think I need like a viola bow or something. Yeah. Here's a bit of the tune Honeybody from his 2016 album Sonderlust.
Um, so you are a multi-instrumentalist, uh, not only violin, you also play guitar and keys. Um, yeah, I feel like everybody should play a bunch of different instruments. I think it affects your violin playing in positive ways. You know, you play guitar. Although, like, <clears throat> I can't handle acoustic guitar as much because it's just the calluses. Or mm. I don't have enough calluses. So, like, switching on stage, switching between acoustic guitar and, like, violin, it's, like, it kind of messes with my fingers. It's, like, really difficult. So I play yeah. n- I play nylon string on stage. But, um, okay. Uh, I think, like, um, yeah, playing keyboards, playing... You know, I've always like I always love music. You know, so it's the kind of thing I'm sure you can relate, and anybody can relate. Is that you know, you, you love music enough, you just violin is just one of the instruments. It's just I, it was a discipline that I, you know, that I worked hard on. You know, through throughout middle school and high school. So, sure, but you know, I, I feel like, uh, and it's the most expressive, and it also gets me the most attention. You know, because it's just uh, it's not as common. I think playing right. other instruments. But I I love I I love different instruments because now as a songwriter it's kind of the thing where I um if if an instrument has like a cool sound that inspires a song that's like worth it for me to 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 try and pick up or even to to buy or something. Sure, I try to tell my students that you know because I teach a lot of improv on violin because it's a thing that a lot of it's it's so strange like guitar players and piano players almost immediately learn how to improv and trumpet players. But violinists, for some reason, the the classical education in the U.S. just doesn't stress improv. So I get all these people that want to learn how to improv on the violin, and, and I tell them, man, one of the one of the ways that's going to help you is if you learn how to play a little guitar, so that yeah. you start hearing in terms of chords rather than in terms of notes. Oh, it's absolutely important, especially if you want to play with bands, because it's like, um. I think like as a violinist or a string player, you know, you think, oh, I got the only job for me out there. Like, for example, I love my, you know, you say you're a young student. You're like, I love my instrument. I want to make a career in this. And you think that the only way you can have a career is to play in an orchestra and to play, you know, notes in front of you. Um, that that career is such a, a, a small, like, sliver of what you can possibly do. You know, you can make music. You can make you can play in a band and make a living, too. You know, I mean, that's hard, but, you know, <laughs> but you can do a lot yeah. of... Di- but basically, like, being versatile on your instrument and being able to understand uh, what other people are playing and then just jump in and do something musically with them is something that's extremely valuable any, in, in, you know, in, in any kind of genre of music, I think. So, and, it, and a violin is so ex- expressive... And and people love the sound, you know. It, it's hard to find somebody who doesn't like the sound of the violin. So it's like, it's true. so it's the kind of thing where it's if you learn to improvise, you learn those chords and understand like how to play with a pop song. It's like something that you can do definitely as a hobby and you know professionally too. I would think. Yeah, when you're writing, do you tend to write from guitar or piano or violin? How do you start? Uh, just everything. Sometimes piano. Sometimes like sample. Like I'll get like a soft synth with one really cool sound that inspires me um i also make loops you know the kind of the way i showed you like when i was making loops um i make right i'll make like something and and i'll save it on my phone you know later i was like oh that was really cool and then i'll try and recreate that or something um it's just uh i think the whole thing with writing songs is that you just i just try and do a lot of them a lot of little ideas all the time and then um i have a really bad memory so i, I just can't remember what I did yesterday <laughs> musically, so I just have to I have to record on my phone, and then then I go back and maybe recreate. That's the same thing. My phone is full of voice memos about song ideas. Yeah, me. Yeah, me too. Exactly. 
So like how many of those actually end up turning into something that you release out of 10 ideas? How many turn into a song? Well, um, I don't know. I have like, yeah, several dozen per album cycle. I would think they're really okay. like little snippets. I'm like, uh, I'm kind of, I wouldn't consider myself lazy, but I definitely, um, I'm not like a prolific songwriter. So I'll go into the studio with 11 songs and my album will be like 10 songs. So I like, I work okay. up the demos. I'm really picky about what songs and I, you know, I, I make my demos like in my studio, you know, uh, pretty much to what it, even before I show it to my band or like you know, if I'm using a band to record with or something, I'll, I'll make it so that I'm like happy with the sound of my voice on it. And so I go into the studio and, and, you know, knowing what I want it to sound like. Um, so yeah, not, not that many. It's usually, I would say, yeah, it's a very select few and I kind of mull it over, over the, the year, you know, I have to put an album out every like two years, half years maybe. Okay. So you mentioned your band. Tell us uh, about the band that you're touring with. Um, so I've got Tall Tall Trees, the banjo player, who's like a great solo artist who plays a unique banjo style. He like whacks it with the mallet, and he's a great songwriter too. Um, and then I have this girl, Pip the Pansy, who's like this flute, awesome flute player. And then I have this drummer, Ryan, and my, my, my monster rock guitar player, Daniel's coming back to join us. April tour. Yeah, I have a new tour coming out uh, in April, US tour. Yeah, let's let's talk about that too. What's uh where what cities you're hitting and what's the um what's sort of the path on that tour? Well, let's see. I can tell you right now. Kind of it's uh it's what's called in the industry a B market tour. <laughs> and okay. uh, it doesn't mean um it basically like A markets are like the major cities, you know, with like millions of people and then the B markets are like the towns that also love music but they're not like super huge. So, okay. um, you know, we're skipping New York City, but we're going to, looks like, Jersey Jersey City. So that's, like, the New Jersey crowd of people who don't want to go into Manhattan to go see a show, right. you know. And then you've got, like, Detroit, Cincinnati, Columbia, Lawrence, Kansas, Birmingham, Savannah, Knoxville, Asheville. So these are, like, smaller, smaller cities that would normally, like, uh, when, on my album release, I can't go to all the cities in the U.S., so I'll go to the the major markets, and then a lot of times people from these towns will come to those other cities. Like, you know, if you sure. live in Detroit, you might drive to Chicago to go see a show. But then, you know, but then I try and do, after that big tour, I'll take a break, and I'll come back and do this B-market tour where it's, um, where I'll, I'll go to these cities where they love music, and, you know, and a lot of times they're really appreciative, you know, to come because they don't get every single show all the time. You know what I mean? Sure. But they love music, and, you know, they have a lot of culture in these cities. That's usually what bands do. It's like a market, B market. Okay. Nice. So talk about some of the challenges because you play and sing at the same time. And uh, Sometimes. I think most of our <laughs> listeners would, would agree that trying to play violin and sing is like incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, I think I've learned that my intonation is really bad when I sing <laughs> and play. So I think that's one of the challenges I need to probably brush up on. Um. Yeah, it's basically like, you know, you got to, when I do it, you know, uh, I just, it just rests on my palm and it kind of hangs and I do just first position or third position chords, you know, right? really, I don't get too intricate. Although sometimes I'll go up with a high line while I'm singing, but it's, I keep it simple, you know, it's really more of, it turns into more of like a guitar. So I'll do it with my, with bowing or with just strumming, like, band, you know, like strumming style. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the reasons I play a fretted violin is because if I'm trying to sing and play at the same time, my brain just can't. And I and I usually end up playing double stops. My brain just can't intonate three notes at once. It's just that isn't happening. Yeah, I just think I'm probably just out of tune <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> I've, I also put a lot of you know a lot of times I'll have yeah I keep my chords really simple you know I don't yeah first second third position that's about it I think like that's within my grasp of keeping things in tune. Sure. But now with the five string, you know, it's got dimension. But I love I love playing the new C chords that I have. You know, never had I never had a thick C chord to play with. So that fifth string is really awesome. Man, it just opens so many doors for me tonally. And then you know I can play when you've got a four string, you can play above your voice real easy. But trying to get below your voice is hard. Yeah, when you've got a C string, it helps a lot. Yeah, I mean I always depended on the, the octave pedal. You know, it was a big part of my sound. But now, sure. now with the C string, you know, I don't need the octave as much, I feel like. But I still use the octave. Um, here's a pro tip if anybody uses <laughs> the octave pedal is that um, I do uh, – I put the reverb before the octave pedal. So the mm. octave pedal actually pushes the reverb down too, so you get this nice, muddy, uh, nasty mess down there. Thickens nice. Up, you know what I mean? So the reverb gets octave down too. Sure. That's a, I do that. Pro tip. That's awesome. Well, I mean, now that you're talking about your pedal board, let's just talk about that. What uh, what effects do you like to do? And then, yeah, what kind of tips do you have, like reverb before octave? Yeah, reverb before octave. I have a delay. I have a bunch of different delays I've gone through over the years. Um, I, I like the whammy pedal, Digitech. Mm-hmm. I like that because I like to go up and down for, like, an effect. Um, and I pretty much rely on the DL4, the Line 6 DL4, for the looping function because it's got the half-speed, double-speed thing that goes immediately. Like, I know the right. I know the time Electronics makes one, too, but um, nothing I've seen goes as quickly. Like, I can really quickly go into double-speed. So, like, on my in my show, it's, like, really fast. So like I keep, right. you know, I'm going through this stuff really fast, and I, a, lot, a lot of the other pedals you have to wait for a cycle before you can add more things, or you know. Um, okay. But, but the company, I don't know, those pedals, I think they've discontinued it or something. That's, or, uh, so I'm like hoarding them now. <laughs> We're gonna take a quick break here and listen to the tune "Summer of '42" from the Omayari album that we talked about in the intro. We're about to get into a discussion about gear. During that discussion, we're both moving around our studios quite a bit and playing show-and-tell with various pieces of gear. So I'm going to make some cuts so you don't have to sit there and wonder why it got quiet for 30 seconds here and there while we're digging up some gear. So if, if you hear some weird edits, that's why. preamp that I really like. Do you know this thing? Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just got it. Two channel. It's great. Yes, the DB2 or something? Yeah, EB, EB2. That's what Headway. it is, yeah. It's great. I like it. It's got some EQs on it. Um, and basically, I use, because I beatbox into my pedal board, too, it's got that mic channel is really perfect. And it's 
super clean. I like it a lot. I was using the LR bags, but I don't know. If I'm gonna... Yeah, if you've got a two-channel, then it's uh, it's nice to have everything all in one pedal. Uh, I also use this um, Arena pedal. I haven't seen that. Um, might be TC Electronics, too. Arena pedal. I okay. love this, like, the one sound. It's this reverb. Um, it's this modulated reverb that I just, like, love. It's, like, on all my albums. Like, I compress it, and it's, like... It, the reverb just warbles. Oh, that's Thick. cool. So that's the one I use primarily, um, my sound. I uh, recently got a drum pad. So I, oh, so in so in Europe, um, yeah. So I got this um, Roland SB SBD one. I got this Roland SBD one okay. kick pedal, which basically. So in Europe, I didn't take a drummer. So we did this intimate show, uh, and I took this amazing cello player, Emily Hope Price. Yes. Yeah, she lives in New York. She's she's incredible. She's got this great voice. One of my most like favorite cello players I've ever played with. Who you know, got this great sensibility and this tone. And uh, anyways, but just I've had this kick pedal just to like, you know, like add a little beat here and there, and it was perfect. So I'd play guitar and I just like stomp on the pedal, stomp on this kick, and that was just enough to to give the show a little edge, you know, uh, just to give it a little beat. And it was awesome. People love people love this show because it was like we'd have this intimacy with the trio, and then I do a little solo thing, and then I'd kick it up with the kick drum, you know. And people were saying like it was their favorite show they've ever seen, you know. Which nice. Please me. So it has a uh, it's got a bunch of samples in it, or can you load some? Yeah, you can load one. I think there's like there's a it's ba- it's a stomp. They have a stomp box sample which I end up using, <laughs> you know, the actual stomp box. Which sure. is what it's based on. Um, yeah, and you can put one in. I mean, they have a cowbell. I think you can mount it too. Your drummer, you can okay. mount it for a single shot hit. But um, yeah, um, and that's about it. Uh, that's my pedal board. Two Line Six D- DL Fours because um, they break down so much. <laughs> mm. So yeah, you like you said, you got a closet full of those things now because they're discontinued. Yeah, I have like a, I have five of them. <laughs> Let's enjoy a few seconds of F. Delano, also from the Omayari album. Then we'll continue our chat. Chip on your shoulder, the scotch tasted much older than before. Nightly occurrence, the men laughed it off like it was a boy to them. They were right, feminine encounters were inside. Lot of live looping on stage with a band. Yeah. What are uh, what are some of the challenges with that? Uh, basically, the drummer being able to lock in with your loop. So um, I basically send I split my line six signal straight. You know, after the after the DI to the drummer, and the drummer has a little mixer. You know. Okay. I think if I had if I had my mo- my own monitor engineer, it would I wouldn't need to do that. But you know, 
I don't have a monitor engineer, so. But that's that's right. probably one of the biggest challenges is to gain because if the drummer doesn't play with your loop, it sounds so lame. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're sunk. <laughs> yeah, so I make sure that the drummers always insist. All the drummers always insist that the the wedge is enough for them. But no, it's like sometimes you just can't hear. You know, if you're in your ears, especially for a few, a few of those songs. But I don't depend on it that much, just for some of them. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, I've done some live looping with a band, and it's because I was playing in a group that um, I wasn't the featured instrument; I was a side guy. So if I'm laying down, say a, a little pad loop thing, and then playing something on top of that, um, it was always my job to make sure that the loop was lining up with the drummer. He wasn't chasing <laughs> me; I was chasing him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a uh, it's tough. It's kind of um, yeah. I guess it's my show, so I can do that. But if I was a side man, I think I used to do. I, I would never, I used to make ambient loops, you know. And the, Yeah, the cool, that's most of what these were. And I guess with the DL4, you can do the one-shot thing, so you can actually hit them, trigger them on the beat. Right. You know, so, which is, kind of gives it, like, the sampler effect. Like, you know. Yeah, but otherwise. I was going to make a, a loop, it, more of a washy thing, so if it was a little off, it ain't the end of the world, and you could always stop it and start it again to, to sync it back up to the drummer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's Yeah, that's how I do it. But when your name's on the marquee, you make them chase you, I guess. Uh, yeah, I make sure that the drummer doesn't <laughs> drift. You know, kind of it's a luxury I have now. But I've do, you know I've been doing this for like ten years, so. Sure. So um, I guess tell people a little bit about your musical journey, how you got started with violin, and how you went from being I'm guessing like a, a more classically trained violinist to where you are now. Um, well, I kind of started with. Um, a, uh, let's see, I started Suzuki violin when I was a kid, and then I moved into, I got pretty serious in high school, I think. I was playing chamber music, like string quartet, you know, Shostakovich and Debussy. I had some buddies who we, I was concert master in my youth orchestra, um, but I never really went, I went to Cornell Engineering, you know, for like uh, a couple years, um, and I think early on I got into, well, I was a metalhead in high school, you know, like any other teenage kid was man, male sure. kid was in the 90s and um I think uh but then I also got into jazz violin I had a Stefan Grappelli book that I was really into mm. and that's that's kind of like what really started my improvisation like I didn't I had, it blew my mind like I got a Stefan Grappelli CD and it just blew my mind like the possibilities of this sound of like this beautiful violin playing like swing music and I just fell in love with it. And it was always something I, I dabbled in. And I took some lessons, but I never really, I, I didn't know how to, you know, I jazz training until much later, until I went to Berkeley. So that's when I, I went to study. Let's see, I flunked out of Cornell. And uh, much to my Asian parents' chagrin, um, <laughs> I went to, <laughs> such a disappointment. Actually, they, were, they, they knew I loved music enough that they, it made sense to them, you know, go to music school. So then I went to Berkeley to study with Matt Glazer, you know, because um, he wrote that book. It's called Jazz Violin. It has a picture of him right. and Stefan Grappelli. And that was the only book, the only book in America at the time, you know, mentioning anything about jazz violin. Um, and I called him up and I was like, you know, he's like, so I went to the String Fling. He has this thing, you know, it's like in August. And uh, yeah, I just went there and met with him. And I asked him, you know, I was like, if I come here to Berkeley, can I study with you? And he's like, yeah. Problem, you know, <laughs> and there's only like eight of us at the time. 
uh, in the screen department. And so I went there, I finished out with, uh, so I studied with him for like three years and then I, I finished with a film scoring major. That was like my, my actual degree. Okay. Um, and so after that, I that, that was in Boston. And then I moved to New York. I played in the Big Apple Circus for a few years. Um, that was my gig, five years. In New York, I was just basically kind of jumping between jazz violin and uh, and like composing, like jingle jingle writing stuff. So it was just mm -hmm. a mixture of composition and playing violin. And then I started up my rock band, Jupiter One. Then I kind of yeah, that that's that's the first part of my story. <laughs> I guess the education part. Uh, right. And then later on, um, later on, I went into. Uh, so I was freelancing, you know, as like this kind of pop violinist, or not pop violin. I guess like an, a violinist who plays in bands, you know. And then, uh, and then I played with, I toured with Regina Spector. I joined her band mm. as like an accompany, accompanying violin, which is very difficult. Uh, basically, violinists and vocalists are always at odds, you know what I mean? Because they're just like right. the melody instruments. So. Absolutely. I think what I was really good at was, as a songwriter, I understood how a violin could support the voice, you know, in a way that's not obtrusive, um, in a way that nobody she knew or anybody could really do. You know, most violins just kind of like noodle and like right. don't know, don't really listen to the voice because they're not song songwriters themselves. You know, right. uh, so I think she kept me on for you know a couple of years because I a company and I could also play some lead lines when I needed to but I could also hang back behind her voice and not be distracting or anything and then I was trying to get my rock band happening Jupiter one where I was mostly just singing and playing guitar and keyboards I don't think they like my violin playing very much <laughs> so it, it didn't really um, and then once I remember <clears throat> I don't know if this story is too long but um, I was opening up, Jupiter One was opening up for Regina Spector, full US tour and Australia. So she invited us to Australia, Australia, but nobody could afford to go there. I was in her band, so I was already there. So I opened solo, sure. I opened up solo, you know, and I was like, oh, okay. yeah, and I was like, shit, what am I gonna do? And you know, she, she let me use my, her guitar and I could um, do some things with violin. So that's when I started to just like play solo violin, no loops, nothing really. No octave pedal, nothing. It's just like solo violin. I had a couple songs where I just tried it, and people loved. Sure. And people loved it, you know. And I did these old these Jupiter One songs, my rock songs, with just stripped down. Okay. They loved it so much that I was like selling out. I sold out the fifty CDs I brought on the first night. We opened up at like Sydney Opera House, you know. Oh my goodness! That I was like, it sold out so quickly that like I bootlegged my albums because my stupid label couldn't get any albums out to Australia. <laughs> They're like a major label, but they couldn't, they didn't care, you know, and they couldn't get like albums out to Australia. So bootlegged like 500 of them, picked them up like two days later, like, you know, CDRs. Oh yeah. yeah that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and I sold those for like $25 Australian, which at the time was one-to-one -one with US dollars. Holy cow. But, so I came back with like $7,000 in like money. After selling, hey, hey fellas, I like you, but y'all are fired. I was like, well, and the drum. Here's a funny thing: is our drummer, the drummer for Jupiter One, Dave Heilman, um, He was like, was also in Regina Spector's band, you know. Um, and he was like, "Man, I think you should go solo." And then I was like, "What? Uh, okay." And 
then I think that's the beginning of when I started to understand like uh, and then you know and obviously I couldn't continue the band for like creative reasons because I felt like I had this this new sound with the violin that I, I really wanted to explore and that's sure. that was kind of the beginning of Kishibashi that and and then I quit eventually and then I quit I joined this band of Montreal which is crazy psychedelic uh, rock band from Athens, Georgia, which I live now. Okay. So I was in their band for like a, a year. That was my next big gig because they were, they were probably like the coolest indie rock band in America at the time. So like I joined So you're there. in Athens now. I don't know why I thought you were in New York. No, I, I lived in New York for like 10 years. Okay. But now I live in Athens, Georgia. Small town. Yeah, U- University of Georgia. Yeah, go dogs. Yeah, so you got a nice college town there with a with a bunch of cool people that are hip to new music, right? Yeah, a- Athens has this really cool scene because it's like this oasis in the south, you know. So people just gravitate towards. It. Uh, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, you know. So, but it's got a lot right. of wealth through the college, through the university. So it's like it's cheap to live. You can bartend and go tour. It's good. Yeah, it's a good life. Great life. <laughs> So I do have this documentary. It's called Omoyari, and um, we're at the final stages. This spring, we're we're really really finishing it, and we've decided that it's going to come out in July. Awesome! Nothing's going to stop us. So you can you uh, you give anybody a, like a heads up as what this is going to be about without giving too much away? Uh, I, I, yeah. Basically, it's about um, it's kind of about my own like minority. Low power mode. Uh oh, this might be okay. Probably have a few more minutes before this phone dies, <laughs> but okay. Um, uh, it's kind of about like minority identity, my own personal minority identity, and um, and also historically, it's about Japanese American in- incarceration, like internment camps mm-hmm. in the and kind of how that lesson um, translates into to being a modern human being, you know, a, a modern American, you know. Uh, also covers the making of the album. So I traveled around the country kind of thinking about things and m- writing songs. Um, and so that's covered as well as like how I made and, and also my new album. So it's music, it's kind of uh, identity, and it's World War II history kind of mixed into one feature-length documentary. Help, Fantastic. Help me God. And that's coming <laughs> out in July. Uh, we're going to finish it by July, yeah. It'll be out. I mean, basically, I'll be talking about it for the entire rest of my life. <laughs> Good. After that. Yeah, I think it sounds like a fantastic story. And I've listened to the music. So your latest album is basically the soundtrack for the documentary or sort of part of the inspiration? Yeah, it's definitely part of it. Originally, it was going to be the soundtrack. And then I realized that this film is taking way too long. So I just put the album out. And then um, and then this, and I'll be making another soundtrack starting now, you know, basically. Like, that's related to the album. But the album making, yeah, the songs were written uh, during the filming process. Okay. Well, the album's fantastic. I love it. Thanks. Here's the tune Marigolds, one of my very favorites from the Omayari album.
So you mentioned being a Suzuki violinist, and obviously there's classical influence in your playing. And um, and you talk about Grappelli, you can definitely hear the jazz influence in your playing too. But you've got a really unique sound that's not Suzuki or Grappelli. So so talk about maybe some of the where did that come from? Um, hmm. Well, I like Ponty. <laughs> I, was, okay. I was a huge Jean Luc Ponty fan. So. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I have that jazz influence. I also like, you know, I wanted to be an ethnomusicologist at some point. I, I listen to music from all around the world. So, and I love great songs. Uh, I think if you're talking about my looping sound, that's something I just kind of developed over the years, you know. I, I just basically, I'm just picky about what uh, I like come out of the violin and how I present it, you know, with my music. But yeah, I've, I listen to, yeah, I have a lot of influences. Yeah, and I think that's what you find with people who have a really eclectic style is they're just taking pieces from everything, right? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, and even like new music or like pop music, I listen to like everything. You know, I have a 14-year-old daughter and all the other, some of the other dads that I know is like, oh, I can't, I wish she'd listen to something else. You know, they're talking about the other, you know, the song sure. they're listening, but I listen to my daughter's playlist, you know, and I, I like, like, most of it. It's kind of interesting, you know. Some of it is absolute garbage, but then if you think of, like, what we listen to, I would say that probably, like, half of what we listen to, we probably would never, ever, we, we could not believe that we listened to that crap back then, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's like, there's we all... We only remember the good yeah, stuff. Yeah, we only remember the good stuff. So when, when, when people say, like, oh, music just isn't as great as it used to be, I, I don't believe that, you know feel like there's always going to be a Mozart or some somebody who's going to like really blow our minds in ways we never um, thought. And I think I keep, I keep that in mind, you know, when I see new young people and like new art. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a, that's a really good perspective to have, especially, you know, you and I are pretty much the same age. So the, the target <laughs> audience for new music is not us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's our kids. But the, but the thing with new music is that, I think as human beings, we always, we crave new music, you know, like we need, that's like part of our existence is what keeps us, uh, like excites us and gives us like, um, I guess like connecting to our humanity is like to, the ability to, to be delighted by new things, you know, art, music. And I think that's, that's why we still have a job. We'll always have a job, like being, uh, being a performer, like playing music for people or like creating new music for people is something that human beings will always crave. You know? I agree. And I hope it's true because this is, <laughs> it's sort of the one thing I'm good at. Yeah. And I think like people, you know, and performing, like people like to see other people emoting through their art. You know, that's when you, when you go see a band, that's what you're going to, you're seeing, you're seeing somebody getting in tune with their own soul, like through their instrument. So people feel that they see that and they relate, they, they either relate to it or they can, you know, they get, they get energy from it. You know, and I think that's why live music is not only important, but it's, it's also, it's, it serves a function of, for people. That's why it's, that's why it'll always be there. I think. Absolutely. 
So what's coming next for you? I guess you're finishing up the documentary this year, right? Yeah, I'm doing the documentary, um, and I'll probably tour with the film with a live music component to it and then have like a question and answer panel discussion with like local activists and like talk about like what you can do, what kind of change you can do locally, you know, and nationally. Um, And then, uh, and then I'm getting into composing a little bit. So I just got a a job to do like a Apple plus series. So I'm going to get into my, I just bought Ooh, 88. Pretty. I got that. I'm trying to get into that. Just as like a, a side hustle, <laughs> you know. Sure. Um, yeah, just like, you know, getting into composing more, I think. Um, and then, yeah, because, you know, I, I know <clears throat> although I've like started to figure out like how to, my tour is like really, I feel like I've, my tour got really dialed in this time around. Um, so like people... Like people, like you know, I've been touring with these various situate various bands of Kishibashi, you know, over the past several years. But people told me that this last tour was like the best show they've seen ever of my shows. You know, and there's some people who are like, "This is our eleventh show," you know. Um, and so I think I've started to figure out what makes what people, you know, what makes people what. I tried to figure. I started to figure out like what people like about my shows and featuring featuring those elements, you know. Yeah, that's always, it's a journey, right? Trying to figure out like what you do that resonates. Because sometimes it's, you're searching a little bit to, well, you know, I'm trying a bunch of things and seeing what works. And and, and as things start to universally resonate, it's like, okay, I'll do more of that. Yeah. And then, but also like, you know, you you have to keep changing also. But the other interesting thing is I I realize that a lot of people don't realize when you tour is that most of the people who come to you to see your show are not the people who came to your last show. So like, mm. like if you do, um, you're like oh man, I had a big show here, and you come back and do that thing. The, most of the people at that big show are not going to be at your next show. They're going to tell the other people who come to see it. You're like, man, you got to go see that band. And then you know, are you going to go see that band? Well, I don't know. I got plans, but you know, it's not like everybody. There's going to be that core. There's going to be that core bunch of people who are going to be at every single show. In the, sure, who stand sure. in the front, but the more the vast majority of that mass of people, if you if you play shows bigger than like a hundred or two hundred people, you know, they're going to be new people, people who haven't seen you in a while. And so, like, if you keep that in mind, you know, you it's it's kind of good to have like great, you have things that work, you know, to bring them back, do sure. new things for the the core fans, you know, in the front. Well, and for yourself too, right? I mean, you don't want to be the the guy up there who's just the trained monkey doing the same thing over and over. Yeah, yeah, that that'll be boring. And then I don't want to bore my musicians too. You know, I feel like I don't pay my musicians enough that they would to play boring to have a boring <laughs> tour. You know, so if I paid them like gazillions of dollars, then they should probably take it and do whatever. But it's like I try and keep my tour interesting for my my band too. You know, sure. It's fun. It's fun, and you make some money. You know. Yeah. Awesome. Well, where can people find you and your stuff? Um, well, there's kishibashi.com, but a lot of it's on Instagram. I'm on Spotify, Apple Music. Oh, it's a bunch of music videos. There's a bunch of videos on YouTube. Oh, that's about it. And on the road, get a big tour in April. All the B-Money. Right, so kishibashi.com, people can find tour dates. Yep. 
And don't feel bad if you live in a B market. B markets are cool. I like B markets, honestly. It's just it just means that you're not a you're not a major city, but you love music. It means you're not stuck in New York or LA. <laughs> but you love music enough that bands will we want to come there. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for doing sure, this, man. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. And that's it. My conversation with Kishibashi. Next month, we're going to have a special episode with stories from tons of our previous guests about gig disasters. It's going to be our funniest episode yet. I've got several of these stories already, and I cannot wait to share them with you. So thank you guys for hanging out. Please be safe out there. Practice, practice, practice. We got lots of time. We'll see you next month for another episode of Rockstar Violinist. Oh